In our continuing series on evangelism, we're going to have a look today at this idea of an everlasting soul. Think about life. We were down in Ballarat and we saw the Begonia Festival. Um, For those who don't know, Begonias are flowers. And you think, they look fabulous when you see them on the day and even look fabulous a week later when the festival's all finished. But give it time, what happens? They're history, all right, except that's raspberries, but don't worry about that. The idea that we used to this concept of you buy flowers, you put them in a vase and they die. You grow plants and depending on how successful you are, sometimes they die straight away, other times they last a bit longer. All right? But that idea of life and death, we're used to that, we see it all the time. And in Matthew, um, he uses this as an example, this idea of um, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I say to the even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? And this idea of, look at what God does for this thing and it lasts what? No time at all. And yet it, then it's basically um, barbecue food for the next day. And I'll come back to the James passage um, a bit later on, but I just want to throw it in now. And I'm just taking this one verse out because it has this idea again where you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And you think, well, you know, what's a human lived to? 70 years? 80 years? Was it three score and ten? Um, depending on whether you're male or female now, there's a bit of variation. But uh, you get the odd person who makes it to a century. Right? So we get used to this idea of we live and we die. So what? Well, that's the common view of our life existence. People... Um, Use this idea, and there's an expression, dead like, you know, you're, it's dead, it's all over, you're dead like Rover. You know, at the end, when you die, that's it, that's all there is. In other words, um, if you're into uh, cryogenics, you can make a lot of money by preserving people on this hope that someday somebody will come along with this idea that you might be able to resurrect them, you know, bring them back to life cure whatever it is that was killing But other than that, you're toast. That's not the only view, but that's probably one of the most common ones. Other things like you get the reincarnation. Um, and for those who don't know, reincarnation is big and eastern, that you live, you die, you go somewhere else for a bit, and then you're reborn. And the idea is that you keep doing it until you get it right. And that's what this idea of, you know, you reach enlightenment is. And you've got other ideas as well. You know, that you all go to heaven or whatever. But what does the Bible say on this? What does it say as far as life, death and what happens afterwards? 
going to start with this idea in John chapter 10. And Jesus says to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you might have life and that you may have it more abundantly. And so Jesus talks about this idea of life abundantly. And the question then is, well, what does that mean? Is he just talking about the here and now? You know, while we're in the sheep paddock, um, life's good, but after that, then what? And so is it just here and now or is it um, dealing with things afterwards? And a lot of people will then use the argument to say, well, you know, I can't see how that would happen. Um, You ever come across that where someone's argument is basically, I don't understand how that could be possible, therefore it can't. And this is one of the things the, um, the Sadducees, the Sadducees tried this with Jesus. And they had this um, issue that they would throw up every time someone talks about resurrection. Right? And basically it was the test they put to Jesus. And the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him saying, Teacher, Moses said if a, Moses, if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were um, with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, spring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise the second also and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection whose wife of the seven will she be, for they all had her. And so this is their practical, this is, this is why it doesn't work, you know. You've got this person and they, they take it to the extreme. It's not just one brother, it's seven brothers and they all marry the same one and nobody gets a child. Right? And eventually they all die and they say, it doesn't work. Right? Can't work. We don't understand it, therefore it can't work. And this is their killer problem for the resurrection. You know, this proves there's no resurrection because I can't understand it. But then Jesus deals with it and basically um, wipes it out in one go. And Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus deals with this issue that they have about this you know, practical problem. But then he goes to the heart of the matter itself and he quotes Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 and for those um, whose memory is not quite like, is, you know, like mine getting a bit slow, uh, this is to do with uh, Moses and the burning bush. 
and it picks it up and he sees the burning bush. And so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, to, to, and said Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look upon God. So this is how God is introducing himself. And Jesus then uses this in this passage. And he draws on the idea that God said, I am, not I was. If I was, then Abraham, Isaac and Jacob don't exist anymore because it's past tense. But he says, I am. So if he still is, 400 plus years later, what does that say about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? They still exist. And that is his basic argument and he destroys the entire Sadducee's argument on is there a resurrection or not by simply saying this is the way God introduced himself. And it's based on the idea that we don't simply cease to exist on the moment of our death. But rather, God still is the God of Isaac, of Abraham and of Jacob. And so, physical death is not the end. In John chapter 3 and verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness... Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And you think about it, this is a common passage that a lot of people know. But what is um, the description, he says, of why he's come? That you might have, what? Everlasting life. You think about everlasting. Is 70 plus years Everlasting. If you had to watch Home and Away for those 70 years, maybe, but no. This idea of everlasting. And it's something that we struggle to get our brain around. And Jesus has done all the hard work for this and all he says is that you need to believe and what follows from that. But if you don't believe that you're condemned. In Revelation Revelation starts to talk about what this eternal life, this everlasting life is going to be like. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning um, and the end. I will give to the fountain of the waters of the life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. 
But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And a bit later on in Revelation 22, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street, And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each yielding um, its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more um, curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, They shall need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so you have this picture of us dwelling in the presence of God, and he describes it as forever and ever. But that's part A. What's part B? On one side, you've got forever and ever in the presence of God. On the other side, we've got what? They get their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so you have two alternatives. And basically, it's not just that you're eternal, it's eternal bliss, if you like, in the presence of God or eternal punishment in the fire. And so having an eternal soul, there's a great reward that is waiting. But for those who don't, for those who choose to go against it, there is a great punishment that is awaiting and that idea of forever and ever. So, these two pictures. And notice it's not you cease to exist or you get to be in the presence of God. It's eternal reward or eternal punishment. There is no other option. And so, what we do here impacts on those consequences. If you remember in the passage, he talks about that those who are involved in this, that's where they end up. But the others don't. They end up um, with God. And again, similarly in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Now when the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to um, those on his right hand, Come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or fe- and feed you 
or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did you see a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to him, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and for his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, when we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister you. Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly I say to you inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And again, the same picture. Jesus is dividing those on one side and those on the other. One gets eternal life, the other gets eternal punishment. And notice it was eternal life that was devised from the foundations of the world. Right? And as Steve said a couple of weeks ago, I think it was Steve, this whole crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection wasn't an accident. Right? It was a plan from the beginning. The same as the eternal blessing of an eternal life with God prepared before the foundations. But notice it's based upon what we've done. And we've talked about before the idea that Jesus came that we may have life to deal with all the sin. So in a sense, the copy book's been wiped clean. But still, a lot of this he talks about, it's because of what we've done. And if we don't have that, re- that forgiveness, that redemption, um, then we'll be basically judged on what we've done. But again, the two outcomes. In Romans chapter 8, 12 to 18, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as you are led by the Spirit of God, there are, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to, be, to fear, but you received the, the, the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we, the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified together. For I consider that the suffering of this present times are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. And you think about all the things, it's not just eternal life, it's all the other things that go along with that. That we're considered children of God, heirs, joint heirs with Christ, if we go down the righteous path. And then, he, and then he sums it up with this idea of whatever you suffer now, it's just not even in consideration to be compared with what comes after. It just pales into insignificance. And I tried to diagram it for you. Unfortunately, infinite, everlasting doesn't fit on a slide. 
But to give you an idea, the dot is now. The green line is everlasting. And it just keeps going. And so that idea of everything now is just, well, how did um, he describe it in James? Your life is like a vapour in comparison to what eternity is, to eternal life with God. So what does that mean for here and now? Eternal life with God, tick. Is that it? What does it matter? How does it affect what we consider is important here? And there's all sorts of things that people throw up as important for your life on this earth. Happiness, pleasure, being good at the best of something, whatever. Is that it? Is that what we just sort of go tick and carry on? Or is it something else? In Romans chapter 6, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, but just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in these things in which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, that your fruit... You have your fruit to holiness and the, the end which is everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so, and this is nothing new. We know that there's a change involved in the life before and the life after. But think about the terminology he's using. We're not just saved, tick, carry on as normal, but we used to be slaves of, of sin. Now we're slaves of God. We're here to do the work of God. And it's um, very provocative, that terminology. You think about slaves or servants of God. That's our, um, our job. That's our reason for being here. And things like, well, what does that look like? Mark 16, Lady appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptised will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in Matthew and on, I'm sorry, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So, slaves, that's our marching orders. Fellow slaves, fellow servants. What's our job description? Yes, we've talked about the change side, but our job description is to preach the word. And that is going to involve, once they get to that certain stage, baptising them and then teaching them all of the other stuff that God is about. And it's a whole church activity. It's not something where you can abdicate it over to someone who is a, um, an evangelistic specialist. We all just give him our work. Right? It's for all of us to be involved in that process in whatever form um, that is. And plug, evangelism class on Sunday night, 6 for 6.30. If you think, I don't know how to do that, come to Steve's class. I want to look at what motivated Paul. In First Corinthians, sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 to 11. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So that's our position now. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality might be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us that of the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that whether we are at home in the body and we are absent from the Lord, we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleasing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether we present or absent, to be well pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to which he has done, and whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So, I, I put the context in because you can see um, that Paul's desire is to be clothed in the eternal life. He's looking forward to it, groaning for it. But yet, he's saying, whether I am here now or there, my job is to be well-pleasing to God. And then at the end, he talks about we know that everyone is going to appear before the judgment seat of um, God. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, and not discounting what Steve was saying um, last week, but the idea of being standing in front of the judge, knowing what the outcome is going to be for some of these people, we do what? We persuade men. 
His motivation was to save people from what he knew was to come, that eternal destruction. That's why we do it. Right? It's not just the fact that we've got the little tick in the box. It's, well, we've got it and we need to be sharing it with everyone to avoid as many as possible going into that eternal destruction. And it says that's what motivated Paul um, in his preaching. In Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about the idea, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgement and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose that he who thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was um, sacrificed a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And again, that emphasis on they have to face judgment in the same way that we do. But we have that salvation and so we need to be approaching them with that in mind. Right? We have a job to do because we know there is a certain fearful expectation of judgment. In James chapter 4, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, where we don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Indeed, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you're boasting in your um, arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, To him it is sin. I threw this one in there. Um, Have you ever heard of the eye when someone says to you, I'll get round to it after I've done this. I've got to pay off the house first. I've got to get that promotion at work. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. You think about what this verse is saying. you may not have tomorrow. So don't put off the work of God for other things. It's if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. Rather than, I'll get all this stuff done first and then if I get time, I'll go around and do what God's interested in. And I want to finish with this. In Luke chapter 2, this is very early on in Jesus' life on this earth. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when he had finished these days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. 
But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who have heard him were amazed and he uh, at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, um, they were amazed and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. But I want to leave us with that thought. I must be about my father's business. 